So we're in that very positive feedback loop, all-time highs, beget all-time highs, and that's just going to keep being the case here for a while until something does. And we're going to have a correction this year. So expect a 5 to a 10% correction, I would suspect, probably sometime this summer. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart, welcoming you back here at the end of the week for another weekly market recap featuring my good and hospitable friend, Lance Roberts. How are you doing, Lance? I'm doing great. It was great seeing you last Saturday. A lot of fun. Uh, enjoyed uh, you being here for our conference. I thought it went well. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was great to, to hang out with you for a bit by lunch. It was a lot of fun. Um, really enjoyed, obviously, seeing you and the team, um, but certainly really enjoyed meeting all the people that showed up. Um, these live events are so valuable to me. Um, one, just because everybody is, is so kind and, and gracious. But, uh, you know, I, I try to run this channel based upon what people care most about. And I, I try to listen a lot to every email and every comment and whatnot. But nothing suffices or, or nothing's better than than being there in person with real people and having them tell you, you know, what they value, where they'd like to see things improved and whatnot. So great experience all around. Really enjoyed the, the keynote uh, speaker there, Greg. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later on here, Lance. But again, you guys took very good care of me, hence hospitable <laughs> as your introductory <laughs> adjective this week. Um, lots to talk about. Lots of data has come out this week. Um, and I guess before we get to just talking about what the markets have done, um, maybe we get to just start with uh, your reaction to the FOMC update that we got this week and the guidance from Jerome Powell. I've talked about it with a few folks on this channel. Um, I just did uh, right before we recorded here a few hours ago, recorded a live event with Axel Merck uh, for the premium Substack audience. So I've got, I'm fresh from Axel's download, but I'd like to see what you took away from uh, from this week's note uh, guidance. Yeah, no, I mean, it was really pretty much in line with kind of what we expected anyway in, in our shop because, you know, there's there's no need. While the market, and we've talked about this numerous times over the course of the last several conversations with you and, and even talked about it last Saturday, is that, you know, when you take a look at the Federal Reserve and, you know, we no longer operate on fundamentals in the market. It's all about what's the Fed going to do next. And the markets are pricing in five to seven rate cuts this year. They were expecting a rate cut at the meeting um, on Wednesday. And, and we're like, there's there's no reason for the Fed to cut rates here. Everything's fine. The economy's fine. Employment's strong. Wage growth is doing well. That showed up in today's, uh, on Friday's employment report, which is going to push out a rate cut even further. The Fed's at three rate cuts this year, which is possible. Um, the market is at five to seven. And so they've got to somehow try to bridge that gap in between. But you know, the conversation from Jerome Powell, there's a few edits to the statement and, you know, really nothing surprising. He's trying to kind of thread that dovish needle at this point. But, you know, just kind of reiterating the same thing is that, yeah, they're probably going to cut rates. And at some point they're going to have to start reducing their balance sheet. But that may be a little bit further off than markets expect. So on Wednesday, markets sold off on that news and then not surprised. And, and we actually did a little bit of buying on on uh Thursday morning because the markets very quickly pivoted right back. It's like, okay, well, he didn't tell us he was going to cut now, but maybe he'll still cut in March. And then, you know, on Friday, the employment report kind of is going to push that potential rate cut out even further. Well, we're, we're, we're going to talk about the jobs data. Um, 
But Powell, you know, when he was asked, he basically said, I don't, I'm not planning on cutting in March. Like, I, I wouldn't expect yeah. us to cut in March. And I, he actually said, it's not our base case. I don't actually see us cutting in March at this point right. in time. Um, and what's so interesting is the markets, which have been pricing in all these rate cuts this year, they shrugged it off. Yeah, there was a sell-off on, on Wednesday, you know, as the news was coming out. But but then, you know, they rebounded. And this morning, we're talking here on Friday, markets are having a great day. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll talk about earnings in just a second, but um, but what is interesting is we're, so it's February second uh, when we're recording this. Uh, it's Groundhog Day. It kind of feels like we're back in the old Groundhog Day, where it's like, look, you know, um, Powell's out there playing coy, telling the markets, "I'm probably not going to cut exactly on the schedule you think I'm going to." Markets saying, "Well, we don't really care. We're gonna we're, we're gonna act as if we don't believe you." And all the activity is going on in the Mag Seven stocks, and they're all doing great, and everything else is kind of lagging. I mean, it feels like we've seen this script for a long time, and we've we've come right back to it. Yeah, and and, and look, this has been the case really since October of twenty two. You know, it's hard to it's it's hard to believe that it's been that long, but you know, you go back to October of twenty of twenty twenty two. I'm not misspeaking. I'm not. I don't mean October of twenty three. I mean October of twenty two. Right, when we bought them, uh, yeah. We we bought them at that point, and ever since then, it has been a incessant rally based on the expectation that the Fed was done hiking rates and that they were going to cut rates, and it's back to monetary accommodation. And you know, this is very fast. It's it's fascinating, but it's also just a part of human nature. Is that over the last thirteen years, we've trained investors that at the first sign or first hint of trouble, the Fed's going to cut rates and increase liquidity to the markets. And so beginning in October of 22, and really all the way down, if you remember in October of 22, yeah, we were having a correction in the market. And there was the Russia-Ukraine, you know, we're going to have World War III fear. And there was this fear. And interest rates are going to the moon fear. And inflation is 9% fear. And at every time the market would sell off, it would rally right back. And, and it was that FOMO that we had from investors. And I would get emails like, is this the bottom? Is, is I don't want to miss the bottom. I got to buy the bottom. And, and it's very differently to what you saw in a real bear market. Again, 2020 market, it was a correction. 2008 was a bear market. That was the last real bear market we've had. And that's an environment where you do not want to own stocks. So people, I mean, it's like, hey, you, stocks are cheap. You want to buy some? Hell no. Are you crazy? I don't want to own any stocks. Market's going to zero. That's a bear market. 2022, every time the market dipped, it was... I got to buy the bottom. I don't want to miss the bottom. I don't want to miss my opportunity to be in stocks when they go up and the Fed cuts rates. And so we've been rallying this market since October of 2022, all of these expectations of these coming Fed rate cuts and those type of things. You kind of have to, you know, the obvious question is, is, is our rate cuts priced in? And you know, we won't know until we get there. But right. you know, or are they are they overly priced in? But <laughs> or but I mean, yeah, we're we're back to multiple expansion, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with this market right now. We're setting new highs on Friday. Uh, had to, you know, we look that little correction we had on Wednesday was very much needed. We talked about the markets being overbought, that you know you needed to have a bit of a correction, and and it and it corrected right to the twenty day moving average, bounced off support, and you know now we're back up to you know all time highs on Friday. So we're in that very positive feedback loop, all-time highs, beget all-time highs, and that's just going to keep being the case here for a while until something does. And, we, and we're going to have a correction this year. So expect a 5 to a 10% correction, I would suspect, probably sometime this summer. 
Uh, markets tend to correct going into a presidential election because markets don't know who, you know, they know what they have with Joe Biden. They're they're pretty confident of what they'll have if they get Donald Trump. But going into the election, you don't know which one you're coming out with. And, and so markets tend to sell off going into the election until there's a determination of who the next president is going to be and then markets rally after that. Because once they know who the president is, then they, okay, well, based on him or her, whoever it's going to be, and there's some theories that in May that Biden will be replaced by Michelle Obama. So by the time we get to November, whether it's him or her, coming out of that election, the markets quickly go, okay, I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to get, you know, Trump's elected, we're going to get tax cuts, we're going to get whatever. And, you know, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to, base my investments on that. If I have the incumbent or replacement, I know what I'm going to have with that. And so I'm going to place my bets accordingly. So that's why you generally get a correction during the summer. And with markets, you know, very overbought right now, still, uh, we're deviated from 50-day moving averages. We're deviated from long-term moving averages. You're going to get a correction at some point. Now, what triggers that? Who knows? But a 5 to 10% correction this year is very likely. All right. Um got plenty to move on to in here we've we've we we now are really seeing how earnings season is shaping up i want to get to our s p chart and find out where we are on the if we're if we're still in oversold overbought territory and if so how overbought real quickly though, before we move off the fed um one of the things that's getting a lot more attention than it normally does uh is the treasury's quarterly guidance um can you talk about that for a minute, about how markets are are reacting to that, or at least how the bond market is reacting to that? Because the Treasury has been an, you know, a pretty big provider of liquidity over the past year or so. And, uh, and so all eyes are looking at what it's going to do going forward. What are you taking away from its latest report? Well, the, the latest report is they're doing, they're not going to issue as much debt as they thought. Now, remember, most of this is you hear these really big numbers off the curve, like the Treasury is going to issue, you know, $700 billion of debt or wherever the number is. But a lot of that's just replacing bills that are rolling off, right? So what's your actual net issuance? That's the, the and, and turned out the Fed's, not, the Treasury's not going to have to issue as much debt. Look, they're still issuing a ton of debt, but they're not going to have to issue as much. And so that was a little bit of a relief to the bond market. One of the big concerns has just been, you know, too much debt. Oversupply. Get, an oversupply of debt. And you just don't have enough buyers, so rates go up. And that's not true, but... You know, in, in this environment, there's plenty of buyers still for debt. So there's not a lack of buyers by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but that's a concern. So the the issuance, the fact that they're going to issue less debt will relieve some of that pressure. Now, the news on Friday with the employment data was a lot stronger than expected. That suggests the economy is firing on all cylinders. Wages uh, were much stronger than expected. So that's potentially an inflationary pressure. Bonds had gotten very, we had a very big runs in bonds and bonds this week. So it wasn't surprising to see a little bit of a sell-off on Friday in the bond market. We actually changed some of the duration in our portfolio. We had, so, uh, we have a very big chunk of our bond portfolio. Let me rephrase that. We have a very big chunk of our bond portfolio in one to three year treasuries. So we shifted about a third of that into seven to 10 year treasuries Friday morning at the open. All right. Well, that's pretty material then. I mean, a third of what you had and yeah, but out of forty percent of our bond, so our portfolio is sixty forty, right? Sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds. We have out of that 40, 15 percent of that was in one to three tre three year treasuries. So we shifted a third of it, five percent. 
we're still, you know, one, we still have 25% of our bond portfolios in very short-term duration. Yeah. So we got to shift. So we talked about needing to shift that duration longer. And as the Fed cuts rates at some point this year, doesn't matter when they do, but they will, then rates will drop down across the long end of the curve. And so we want to be there before that happens. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, I'm just noting this, that this is, sounds like a decision you and your partner, Michael Leibowitz there made to say, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to move, you know, a not insignificant amount of our short duration stuff further out the yeah. curve. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, and, and because also you're going to lose, you know, the yield on the one to three year treasuries is good right now, but that's going to go away as the Fed cuts rate. So I don't want to be trapped in short, short duration. And plus you get no bang for your buck on a duration basis as rates come down, right? They don't appreciate that much. So you kind of get a double negative in really short duration, bond, your one to three year treasuries. They're fine for holding short term cash, but on a longer term basis, you don't want to be there. Right, right. And, and, I, and I guess if rates do come down, you get a double benefit on the things that are further out the duration curve. You get uh, to keep that nice rate and you get the appreciation. Correct. Okay. Um, so earnings season. Um, so we had uh, a lot of the MAG7 um, stocks report this week, and it seemed for the majority, uh, the market really liked what it saw. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean, it, it is very segregated to just a handful of stocks. Um, in fact, I just posted a chart on Twitter this morning here. Let me share my screen. Um, you know, if, if you take a look at earnings, it is a very narrow window of what companies are actually growing earnings versus those that aren't. And so if you take a look at the forward 12-month EPS on NASDAQ stocks, and this is primarily, remember, even in the NASDAQ, it's primarily Apple, Google, Meta, et cetera. All the earnings growth is coming from those stocks, not the rest of the market. So if you take a look, you know, UPS had a terrible report this week. If you take a look at most of your other uh, stocks, particularly your small cap, mid cap companies, they're not growing earnings. They've actually got earnings contraction. So we're 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 chasing a market that yes, companies are a first of all, companies are beating very much lowered estimates, and so it's great that companies are coming in. You know, Google had a good report, a little bit light on revenue, but had a good report, but they barely beat estimates that were already dropped dramatically from last year. So again, you know, we lowered, we dropped estimates for the S and P five hundred about eight dollars a share just in the last two months of the year and companies are barely getting over that bar. So yeah, we're growing earnings, but it's certainly not at the robust level to justify companies trading at 30 and 40 times price to sales. You just don't have that type of revenue growth in the market, but that doesn't matter right now. It's all about the Fed. <laughs> I was going to say. So of course, then multiple expansion, why not? <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, and that's what you're getting. And look, markets rise. And you know, I had that chart in our uh, presentation over the weekend showing, you know, you know, when you're in a secular bull market, that's a period as we are in now that started in 2009. That's a period of multiple expansion where we continue to pay more and more and more for every dollar's worth of earnings because we think this cycle is just going to continue indefinitely. But, it, you know, it, it eventually won't. You're going to go through a period of multiple contraction. But, you know, the problem for most investors that have never seen a bear market, they don't know what that looks like. And so you go through a period of you know, 10 to 15 years of a multiple contraction phase and your rate of return on stocks is near zero, you know, zero, one, two, three percent, you know, all of a sudden it's no longer a fun place to be an investor in. Yeah. Um, I just want to note here too, for when we get to the jobs data, um, you know, we're, we're back in this market bifurcation, right? Where it's a very 
few stocks that are powering the indices higher. And we're 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 seeing the vast majority of the the stocks in the in indices getting left behind, right? And and you talked there about EPS for those smaller stocks starting to roll over. We talked about this a bit at, at, in Houston, but is you know when you look at the jobs market and, and if you're concerned about it, um, you got to be concerned about weakness in the small to mid-sized companies because that's where the vast majority of jobs are in America, right? We look at the headlines, we look at all the, the big brand names that are, are laying off. And I actually have a list I'm going to run through in a little bit later. But um, but but those on a relative basis, that that's that's not the iceberg. That's more the tip of the iceberg. We get to worry more about the iceberg, which is the small and medium-sized companies. Well, yeah, we talked about that. You know, 50% of all your jobs come from small to mid-sized companies. And that's one of the big flaws with the BLS employment report is they survey large companies because they're easy to get a hold of, right? So they survey large companies and say, okay, What's your employment situation look like? Well, big companies like Apple and Google, they're hiring. Um, but then they extrapolate that out to small and medium-sized businesses, which is that is not the case. But that's why you get these flawed numbers in the employment data is because of that extrapolation when you survey a small pool of, of one type of employer and they say, okay, well, if they're doing this, everybody must be doing it. Right. And that's really, if you take a look at the NFIB report, which is the National Federation of Independent Business. They, and that, that is a organization of small to mid-sized businesses. And, you know, their outlook is, is pretty dim. And, you know, there's been a lot of videos out on, on, you know, TikTok and, you know, other meet and Twitter and other, you know, social media places lately. I've just, I, I got into that side of, of social media somehow, but I'm now- Are there highly reliable media sources like TikTok? Yep, keep going. Right. Well, no, I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm not saying that, but these are, these are, these are people though making videos going, hey, I don't understand what's going on. You know, I, you know, I hear about how great things are and yet I've sent out 1400, you know, um, resumes and I'm not even getting a call back. And it's not just one person. This is a lot of people that are that are noting, and particularly like they're they're putting resumes out on LinkedIn, and they're getting like no responses whatsoever, even though there's supposedly all of these job openings. So yeah, and, and to your point, credibility is a big issue. But you know, again, there's just this kind of underbelly to the market, and you know, I've had you know I've, I've said this a couple of times on our show, and I get a lot of emails from people. Going, yeah, I'm having exactly the same issue. I'm sending out all kinds of resumes. And I'm not even getting callbacks. So let's put a pin on this because I want to dig a little bit deeper into this when we get to yeah. the jobs part. Before we do, though, can you start pulling up your S&P chart? Because I just want to give folks a visualization of, of where we are right now on, you know, relative valuation side of things. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that being said, though, I do have some data here that that's going to almost turn the jobs section into our rant for the week. But it's not because I've got <laughs> some other good rants. Um, all right. So here we are. Um we're still in that uptrend that's you know way above the moving averages at this point. Um, yeah, it's looking like we're still in oversold or overbought territory, but I'll, I'll I'll let you editorialize here. Oh no, no, you, you you've got it right. I mean, um, you know, the top charters are kind of our primary buy signal, sell signal, etc. And you know, again, we're doing very much similar to what we and, and we said this last Friday is that we're, you know, this, this move in the market, it's very similar to what we saw in March, April, May, June, July of, of last year. Uh, the markets were at a very high level in terms of the MACD signal and just kind of grinded sideways on that signal. The market just kind of ground higher on expectations that, you know, the, the world is fine and it's all about AI and we're back into that whole game again. It's all about AI now. And, and you know, every company that comes out and says, 
oh yeah, we're going to do AI next year. You know, the market, the stock just takes off. Um, but we're into that cycle and, you know, this cycle is going to end at some point and we're going to, that's what I'm saying, you know, probably sometime this summer, uh, could be sooner, could be, you know, March, April, May, could be May, June, July. I don't know when it's going to occur, but sometime uh, early this year, we're going to get another five to a 10% correction. I'll just be kind of that reset that we'll go through, you know, the, the Fed's not going to hike rates as, or cut rates as much as we thought, or they're not going to taper QT as soon as we thought, or there'll be some issue, right? It'll be just something that happens that causes this market to cool its heels a little bit. And that'll be very healthy. Um, we need to get this, some of this overbought condition worked off. This deviation that we currently have between the, the market and the 200-day moving average is about as egregious as it was back in July of last year. So this big gap between the market and the 200-day, that's got to resolve itself at some point as well. So again, you'll you know, moving averages act like gravity. So, you know, kind of like we talked about stretching rubber band is that when you stretch that rubber band, it's going to eventually pop back to gravity. And, and that 200 day is acting as that is that gravitational force. So it, it wants to pull those prices down towards that moving average at some point. And that's going to happen again. What causes it? Who knows? But um, you'll have plenty of signal. You know, the market will start to sell off or trigger sell signal. We'll talk about reducing risk in portfolios. Um, and and that'll probably be in the next you know couple of months or so. All right, and I want to just want to take a minute here and, and underline your point there about reducing risk. So um, you know we'll get comments that are like, oh, you guys, you know, keep bringing up all these bearish points, and you're missing the run in the markets and and all that stuff. And and I just want to like really call out for people that that you know we're not delivering a hey everybody get in the bunker message on this channel. Um, you know, when 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 the market is running, the market is running. It is what it is. And I think, you know, you do a really good job week after week of reminding us, Lance, you know, we 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 got to deal with the markets we have, not the markets we wish we have or we think should exist. Right. And that's not to say don't throw caution to the wind, far from it. And and I think it's really important to keep caution at the very forefront of your mind. Um, but you just want to you want to be practical. And to say, look, you know, if, if if the market momentum is grinding higher for whatever reason, whether you like it or not, um, if you're an investor and your job is to make money over time, you know, you should be asking yourself, um, if 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 the bulls are running, how can I participate in that in a way that makes me feel comfortable enough with my risk profile, right? Um, and uh, you know, I think a good financial advisor like like you guys, Lance. You know what you're trying to figure out how to do is okay. How do I participate in the markets we have, and yet cognizant of some of these risks that we have out there? How do we do that in a way where if the market does turn suddenly, or if these fundamentals that have not mattered for so long suddenly start to matter again? You know, how do we do that in a way where we're not vulnerable to losing a, a huge chunk in a drawdown, where we've got enough hedges or at least enough um, diversification or other things in place? that um you know our our expected odds are still pretty good of riding what what upside momentum remains but uh limiting some of the downside impact yeah and that's why so you know on, on simplevisor we're we're just launched a, a second uh money flow analysis which is what i'm showing you right now and uh this uses weekly data versus daily data and the reason this is important is look the, the biggest mistake that investors try to make is they try to avoid all losses, right? So, oh, I don't want to lose any money, so I'm going to get out now. And then they wind up missing a big chunk of the advance. 
just understand that when you invest money, be okay with losing some money. Now, I'm not saying lose a lot. Now, that's a big difference, right? But I'm okay with losing a little money because I will have hopefully made a bunch of money on the way up. And what this what this weekly indicator does, again, this is a, a beta version. We're, we're going through a complete revamp of Simplevisor right now. We've got the, the, the new format of this is really cool. I saw it yesterday. Uh, so I'm really excited about rolling it out. But uh, this is one of the graphs that will get updated. But this uses weekly data. And what it does is it smooths out kind of the market dynamics to a bit. But even, you know, you'll notice that last year, as an example, the market peaked in July. You didn't get a strong sell to reduce, you know, really step out, reduce equity risk until August. And then you avoided all the drag from, you know, in September and October. You missed a little bit of the bottom in November, then triggered uh, about mid-November. You triggered a strong buy, and you've been in ever since. And so, you know, what this helps do is avoid, you know, panic selling and getting out of the market, and then figuring out you got out too soon. The market's still running, and so now you've got to try to get back in and and do that. And this this analysis works with individual stocks. It works with markets. It, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. But you know the whole point of investing is trying to invest long term, and you know we've, we we there's stocks in our portfolio that we've owned um, since the beginning, and we've we trimmed them down, we've reduced them back uh, during risk periods, we've added to them when the risk period is over, um, and we you know just kind of you know take profits and reduce risk as needed, and then add that money back as you know as things grow, and so you know there's stocks that we've owned that are that are up a lot over that period of time, because we just kind of manage that risk exposure, you know, kind of as we go along. Um, one thing we, we can talk about later is last week, we had a whole lot of people requesting an all equity model that would provide better yield. So last week, we launched a dividend growth equity model. And it's kind of a unique model because it, it has a lot of the S&P beta to it, but has double the yield of the S&P. So we're beta testing that one right now, and hopefully we'll have that out to our clients in the next month or so. But, you know, there's just a lot of things that we can do to try to take advantage of the market that we have, but still manage risk as a function of that process along the way. All right. A couple of things. One, I'm sure you just perked up some people's ears. So when if the back testing goes well on that new model, um, when you do roll it out to clients, I'd love for you to just on one of these weekly market recaps, you know, tell us more about it for folks that are interested. Yeah. Secondly, when Simplevisor, when the, the 2.0 version releases, uh, same thing, maybe we'll let you give a couple minutes of a refresher here for folks on exactly what Simplevisor is, because I'm not sure yeah. every viewer really gets it. Um, and it's a, it's a nice service that people don't have to become a client of yours necessarily uh, in terms of having you manage their assets, they can just use the Simplevisor tools um, and resources to manage their own money if they're more like a DIY type of person. Right, and that's and that's really what this this whole platform is for is for the DIY investor. Uh, but you know, a couple of things that are coming out is a, a complete new interface. But then also, um, there's a whole there's about ten portfolios that are coming uh, along with Simplevisor that you can invest money in, and they're managed for you by the Simplevisor platform. So. There's there's a lot of really cool innovation that's coming over the course of the next you know two three months as we get there. But the dividend equity model is actually live now on um, on Simplevisor, so I can show you some of that whenever you want. Okay, um, I'm I'm not going to do it this time just because we that's got fine. so much to go through. But we'll we'll leave people hungry to to, to learn about it. Um, <laughs> just just to revisit the point I was making earlier. Um, 
So I had conversations yesterday, uh, both with Sven Henrik, as I mentioned, um, and with Axel Merck. And um, uh, you know, the, the, the theme of them was both sort of like, you know, um, whether you like where this the steamroller is going or, or the direction the Mack truck is headed in, whichever analogy you want to use, um, whether you're happy about it, whether you're unhappy about it, it doesn't make sense to just stand in front of it on principle, out of spite, right? It's just going to roll you over, right? And the point is, is, is one of the problems that, one of the challenges that bears have is the entire system, the entire power structure is trying to keep the party going. So if you're going to be on, on team contrarian on the bearish side, um, you really got to be right and, and you really got to have your timing pretty good too. Um, and I'm not saying hey, don't be bearish if, if that's what your, your analysis tells you to do. I'm just being eyes wide open that that every part of the system is trying to keep the bullish part of it going. And so you got to realize you're, you're, you're fighting everybody when, when you're taking that bearish position. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll give a little preview. So the day after this video, um, if folks are watching this on Saturday, tomorrow, Sunday's video is the one with Sven. And you're probably going to like the general thesis if you're a market skeptic like I am uh, in general. <laughs> and and he basically said, look, he, he said uh, he said the bears had every opportunity to try to gain control of the markets over the past couple of years. I mean, you couldn't have asked for more. Right. You, you had this global pandemic. They shut down the economy. You then had like the greatest rate hike you know, campaign in, in history. Right. And he's like, but they still couldn't break. The market momentum and so he's kind of saying look i i think for the foreseeable future the bulls the, like it or not they're just proving that they are in control of this thing and uh when, when we you know dug into kind of his out, outlook for the year he's definitely got some concerns about valuation and thinks that there's some uncertainties in 2024 that that yeah you know it's probably going to be at a bit of a bumpy ride this year uh from his perspective but sort of like guys like Felix Zuloff, he's like, whatever happens this year that begins to, you know, get things out of the hand of the central planners, the response is going to be so egregiously big that the resulting, you know, spike in the markets is going to be gargantuan. So like, again, if you're, if you're sort of expecting this sort of, you know, bearish washout of the markets, Probably not going to happen. I mean, you might get a little bit of, of time where markets start to soften, you know, if, if, if something starts really wobbling in the economy. But the response from these guys they've proven is they're going to be early and they're going to be really big. Uh, and so, okay. again, it's just just cautionary. Who knows what's going to happen? I'm not saying that Sven's got it exactly right, but I'm just saying more and more of these folks I talk to are, are saying, man, you know, and, and he says, I don't like this prediction. <laughs> He's like, I think we should have a recession. I think we should have a big market correction. I'm just not sure we're going to have one because bears pretty much had the table served for them and they couldn't take advantage of it. No, it, it's very true. And and actually, you know, they, they, they did in a lot of ways, they did well. Um, you know, back in 2022, there was a lot of stocks that were down 70, 80, 90%. Um, you know, meta as an example, uh, that stock went from, you know, almost $350 a share down to roughly a hundred dollars a share. Now it's back to four fifty. So you know, it just, you know, there's a lot of companies got really beaten up during 2022. A lot of companies went out of business. Um, you know, 
And now you've got that kind of tailwind of, of market dynamics back in phase. And, you know, the thing is, it's always interesting. There's, there's a lot of reasons to be bearish. And look, we write a lot of bearish stuff. Um, I've got an article out today talking about should retirees put as much money as they're doing? They're piling into equities right now. The retirees are, are putting a lot of their money into equity risk right now. The, the whole construction of the article is, well, you know, should you, um, particularly given, you know, where we are valuation-wise, et cetera. But, you know, the, the tailwinds are behind the market. And look, it's a lot more fun to make money in the market than it is when the markets are going down. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure why, why you fight it, you know, just enjoy the swim while you have it. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think that's what I'm trying to underscore here, which is we tend to put ourselves either in the bullish camp or the bearish camp, right? right. And I guess what I'm saying, Lance, and this will be music to your ears, we really should aspire to be more like eagles, right? We we really should be saying like, hey, look, there's some bearish elements and there's some bullish elements, and I'm going to try to basically position to take advantage of both of them, seeing the market as it is. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that's kind of my advice to people, which is if you self-identify as a bear, maybe start thinking about self-identifying as an eagle. Yeah. Again, I'm going to change. I guess I got to change my Twitter handle. Well, you do what you can use our logo if you want. You you can put that on your uh, your handle. <laughs> all right, all right. As long as your lawyer signs off, I'm not going to be uh, no copyright infringement. Okay, um, so much to get to, including your article about um, whether retirement savers are are maybe taking on too much risk in this market. Um, but let's get to um, some of the other information that came out this week. Um, so we've referenced the jobs numbers a little bit. Let me just lay the groundwork here. So folks, the payrolls number just came out, massive blowout, 353,000 jobs were added uh, versus expectations of just 185,000. That was another massive Sigma beat. I think this was a four Sigma beat versus the analyst expectations. Um, now, of course, you know, this is where it starts getting really frustrating. Um, to your earlier mini rant there, Lance, like these these incredibly rosy numbers don't seem to be jiving with sort of folks' real boots on the ground, you know, uh, views and observations. And and as in the past, um, there, there are two ways in which the payroll, um, two surveys that the, the payroll um, analysts use to come up with their numbers here. One's the establishment survey, which is that uh, 353 one. Then the other is the household survey where they actually call up real houses and talk to people. Well, that one uh, showed that jobs dropped by 31,000, right? So we're beginning to see, you know, an even bigger gap between the methodologies that are, are used by the same organization to uh, to calculate uh, the, the payroll numbers. Um, first time jobs actually declined by 63,000. Um, part time jobs surged by 96,000. So, you know, we're definitely seeing kind of a diminishing of quality uh, of the job base here. We've talked about this a lot. You did mention that the average hourly wage increased, Lance, but that's only because hours worked during the work week declined. It wasn't actually that nominal wages increased. It was just they're, they're taking that same uh, wage for the week and, and they've got a, a, a smaller right. denominator now. That's correct. And it's yeah. a pretty big drop, by the way, too. It went from 34.4 to 34.1 hours. So okay. pretty, pretty significant drop. Yeah. Uh, and then last stat, and then I'll let you uh, take it over here. Um, so the unemployment rate remained unchanged at 3.7%. Um, I, I did a wonderful interview with Lacey Hunt uh, that folks, if you haven't watched it yet, you should definitely watch it after this one. 
Um, but Lacey, you know, th these numbers don't jive with what Lacey says he's seeing from, from the data that he looks at. He cited a stat that 45 states uh, that their unemployment offices are reporting increases in unemployment benefits now. So um, again, we're, we're sort of, again, we're, we've made this comment before, like I sort of feel like I'm, I'm watching the news and the meteorologist is telling me how sunny it is, but I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing the rain, right? <laughs> three days, Adam, three days. That's all meteorologists are good for. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they should be pretty good in terms of what's happening right now, right? And it's just that kind of like, you know, look, you and I talk about how much we can, how much faith we can put in this government data, the data that's put out by the BLS, you know, is it as rosy as it seems? I'm not really sure it is, but it's ones like this where I'm like, come on guys, this is almost in the like, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining kind of deal. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you kind of hit it. Uh, you know, it's interesting to watch what's going on. So this chart I've got up right now, this is the cumulative difference between the household survey and the the official BLS report. And and as of this last report, we're near a million job discrepancy on a cumulative basis over time. So there's it's a very interesting situation. And you've seen, and people have seen this chart before, there's this growing gap between um, the cumulative actual workers that are out there versus what the BLS says. And, and the, the number of workers are actually declining, um, even though BLS says we're just printing these amazing amount of jobs every month. But don't forget, this is an election year, by the way. So we still have revisions coming next year, which could be very interesting. Uh, this is the most important chart, though, that I, I keep going back to, which is full-time employees relative to the working age population. Now, this actually, the, the full-time employees relative to the working age population actually ticked up slightly in this past report. Um, the only reason, though, that it ticked up slightly in this past report is because we lost 451,000 people in the population. The population actually shrank by 451,000 people last month. Um, now, as you can see, those red bars at the bottom are very rare. That's when population decreases for some strange reason. Um, but the only reason that some of these numbers look better on a, on a reported basis is because there was a, a big contraction to the actual population change. So, you know, again, it, it's just one of those, normally the, the population kind of ticks along every, you know, every month we add, you know, 200,000 people to the, to the roles, whatever it is. Um, this is everybody's 60, this is working age population. So 16 years and older. Um, we normally add a couple hundred thousand people a month. And then all of a sudden last month, we just had this big 451,000 person decline. So it was just very interesting. Is that an adjustment? Is, is it, do they periodically go and just, it's not like it, yeah, you, that you, you, happened you can, in the past month, right? Right. No, you can, you can kind of see that every now and then, like somebody comes in and says, oh, we need to adjust that. And yeah. that's where you get these big red declines. But that's the only reason, if it wasn't for that adjustment, the full-time employment to population number would be a lot worse. And, and the important thing about that is, is that when you see these big declines in full-time employment relative to population, that only occurs as the economy is actually going into recession. So you kind of go back and look at these previous periods like 2008, 2019, uh, sorry, sorry, early 2020, um, you know, back in heading into 2000, you see these big drops in full-time employment to working age population because this is where companies are going, I'm done hiring. And all of a sudden you get layoffs and those type of things occur. So we're seeing 
something that says something vastly different relative to what the BLS is reporting. Exactly. And, 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 if, and if I can, just, just let me read this real quick. I won't read the whole list here, but um, this is a list of recent layoffs. Twitch laid off 35% of its workforce. Hasbro, 20% of its workforce. Spotify, 17% of its workforce. Levi's, 15% of its workforce. Xerox, 15%. Qualtrics, 14%. Wayfair, 13%. Duolingo, 10%. Washington Post, 10%. eBay, 9%. Business Insider, 8%. PayPal, 7%. Charles Schwab, 6%. Um, and then UPS, BlackRock, Citigroup, Pixar have all um, also let... Uh, thousands to tens of thousands of employees go. Um, my point here being is, again, this is the data we're seeing when we're looking out the window. These are the storm clouds. This is the rain and the lightning we're seeing. And yet, you know, the BLS is saying, hey, nothing but sunny skies, right? It's, if this happened once, fine, but, but we've seen this a lot. And we're now getting to a point where I think the disconnect, and you showed that chart between the establishment and the household survey that it's at its greatest uh, yeah. discrepancy so far. I think it's getting really hard to look at this as anything other than this is just as much lipstick as you can smear on that pig in an election year. Yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of comments about that, you know, about this is, you know, just manipulation and yeah. well, blah, pr blah, prove blah. it wrong. What's the contrary? Well, no, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that, you know, the BLS is always wrong. I mean, it's it's you know, I think it's more heightened. I think people notice it more when it's but, in but, but they're a lot wronger. Yes, they're wrong, but they are a lot yeah. wronger than normally right now. Yeah, but yeah, but but the thing is, is they're always wrong, and you know, then we don't find out how wrong they are until there's an actual revision to the data later. But we don't care about revisions. Nobody ever goes back and looks at you know every year and every three years we get these big data revisions like on GDP things like that. Nobody ever goes back and looks at those, you know, how wrong they were for so long. And, and we based all of our monetary policy decisions, our, our fiscal policy decisions on this data that was flawed from the beginning. And, and, you know, so, you know, is it really manipulating it, put the stick on the pig, you know, lipstick on the pig for the election? Maybe. I mean, they are a government agency, but I think it's a function that their, you know, their collection, their, their data collection process is hugely flawed. Their mathematical adjustments are hugely flawed. Um, their birth death adjustment is a complete farce. So, you know, because none of that has anything to do with what really happens, you know, in the world. And if you, and if the, if the BLS wanted to be honest, I run this analysis is that if they wanted to really be honest, use the non seasonally adjusted household survey and just use a 12 month moving average and you get a much more accurate employment rate over time than you do with all this other nonsense that they pay hundreds of government employees to do. It would be one guy with a pencil and he could do the whole job of the entire BLS. Well, yeah. So, you know, simple solution, never going to happen because it's simple <laughs> and easy and smart, right? Um, yeah. All right. So, uh, well, the last point on this was just just because because one of the reasons, folks, why this is so important is because many, many of the analysts I've interviewed on this channel, and I myself also strongly share this opinion, which is that like one of the key linchpins in the whole story here is employment, right? That that's really as goes employment will go, you know, the soft, hard, no landing scenario, right? And if you look at what's being reported right now by the BLS, it's like total no landing, nothing to worry about, right? Um, but if that 
if those indicators are faulty, um, one, you know, then the headlines are are deceptive. But two, if that's what's driving monetary policy, right, or, or monetary and fiscal policy, then that is akin to a pilot, you know, piloting a craft with faulty instrumentation. We've used that analogy many times in the past. And Lance, yes, we all agree that the BLS instruments aren't good in general. But there's a big difference if your altimeter is off by a couple hundred feet versus many thousands of feet, right? And it's beginning yeah. to feel like it's the latter. <laughs> yeah, but okay, but here's the important, it's a great point, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong, but the market doesn't care about that, right? So, and this is the important thing. Look, the, the, the markets are surging higher on Friday on this employment number. Now that employment number is actually bad for, here, let me show you something real quick because you know this is, this is what's going on in the market. So let me just pull up yeah. a heat map of the- uh, Okay, of the well, as you're pulling it up, let me ask this question for you to respond okay. to because I think it's where you're going there, well, right? Which is like- I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think so, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, no, no, no. All right, well, then you go. No, I was just going to say, look, if you take a look at the markets today, the markets are up strongly on Friday, but it's only a handful of stocks. It's Amazon, Meta, NVIDIA, Microsoft. It's, it's all the big mega caps. Right. It's Groundhog Day. Yep. It's right. It's Groundhog Day. So, so the point is, is that super strong employment number says that the Fed is not going to hike rates anytime soon. And the market completely shrugged that off and said, yeah, you're still going to cut rates. Maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be April or May, but I still think you're going to cut rates. And so, boom, immediately we go right back into the chase. Here's my point about this. So let's just say, let's just say you're absolutely right, Adam, and that the economic, the employment data is entirely wrong. I mean, and, and I'm not, let's say it's wrong by 50%. And we only had a, you know, let's say it's even worse that we actually had no employment last month. We just, we had negative job growth. Okay. It doesn't matter because all the all the market is going to look at today is what was that number and what's the implication of that number. Now, when we get the revisions, you may very well be right. Six months from now or a year from now, we'll get the revisions and say, oh, yeah, look at that. Adam was right. In January, we had negative job growth. But the market's going to be 30% higher. Right. It'll be too late to matter. It'll be ancient and, history. Yeah, and, and the market will have already factored in the fact that the employment data has changed. So, you know, it's, I'm not saying that it's not, no, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, Adam, and anybody listening, don't, don't take me what I'm saying is wrong, because I do all this same data, right? I've, you saw the charts, I was building charts this morning to analyze the, the employment data. This stuff is important, but just understand that the markets can remain irrational for a lot longer than you think, and, they're, and the markets are focusing on the data that they have today. The market doesn't care about revisions. By the time that data gets revised, we'll be off onto a whole nother story that we're looking at. Well, you know, yeah, job growth was a lot weaker than we thought, but look, we're over that hump and now it's the new horizon. Employment should be coming back. You know, we got through the trough or whatever it was. The markets are always looking forward. So, you know, if you're, if you're hinging, here's my whole point, is that if you're hinging your entire portfolio analysis structure on valuations, which are important, valuations are very important. I did a whole segment on valuations in my presentation on Saturday. Right. Valuations are very important in the long term. In they're the not, long run. Yep. Yeah, I know. They're not they're not important this month, next month, this year. Valuations are not important. It's all about momentum. Economic data is not important unless it's something totally shocking. Like what would have actually shocked the markets this morning, uh, maybe good, maybe bad, was maybe that number being a negative 150,000 jobs. And all right. of a sudden the market would have to start prime. Well, sh does, uh, yes, we're gonna get rate cuts, but 
are we about to have a recession now? Right, right. And what's that, the net? Yeah. And, and what's that going to do to earnings? So, you know, these are these are the the challenges that we have as investors. And again, you know, this isn't a healthy market. Uh, nobody's arguing that. I did a whole series of charts about the bifurcation between uh, S&P market cap weighted and equal weighted. Um, you know, and, and we have this big, and, and this year is another good example. S&P 500 market cap is just crushing equal weighted stocks right now. So, you know, if you're, you know, we run our portfolios kind of on a blended basis. And so, you know, we're, you know, having, you know, we're, our performance is, is, is tracking the S&P right now because bonds have been doing great this year. But outside of that, we would be lagging because we don't own just seven stocks or six. Right. And again, <laughs> Groundhog Day again. Okay, so yeah. this is this is going to the question that I was going to work up to in this discussion, but I'll pull it up now, which is um, so the Atlanta GDP Atlanta uh, Fed's GDP Now tool uh, just increased its expected uh, Q1 GDP up to four point two percent. That'll be higher after today. Okay, so here's my question, right? So let's 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 even say, okay, so let's say it goes higher, right? So you have okay. higher than four point two percent expected GDP growth, and you've got just blockbuster uh, jobs, right? How can the Fed accelerate cuts into this environment, right? It's like, hey, this is this is an economy that is doing great. Maybe we need to start talking about overheating if we're looking at these official numbers. Right. I mean, does, does that does that somehow, you know, is that in some way uh, make it harder for the Fed to deliver on the three rate cuts this year? Because it's like. Why? <laughs> well, this is look, this has been my argument all along, which is, you know, this is Nirvana. You know, if if I was if I was the Federal Reserve chairman. Right. And I've got five percent rate hikes, you know. Fed funds rates sitting on my books right now. And the economy's doing fine. Markets are doing great. Um, you know, employment is fantastic. Why would I cut rates? I would just leave them there. And then when the economy, when and when that higher rate, that lag effect of higher rates actually started to kick into the market, then I have some ammo in my my gun, so to speak, that I can start cutting rates to you know kind of boost the economy a bit, yeah, right? Exactly. Sort of try to stave off recession. At the same time, I would be rapidly cutting QT. I'd be doing, I would have doubled or tripled QT by now. Um, really started reducing that balance sheet. Yeah, it might cause some problems for some of the banks, but you know, you got to resolve your own issues at some point. You got to grow up and be big boys like everybody else. But be working off that balance sheet. So I had that room at some point in the future to start monetizing debt that the government's going to need to issue. So you know, this is, but this is, look, I have, I have tons of flaws with government. I thought the government, when interest rates were zero and the 10-year treasury and 30-year treasury were trading, you know, below 1%, why didn't you refinance all the social security debt, right? Yeah. You know, you just, you know, there's so many missed opportunities to, to, you know, kind of fix some of the financial system that just, you know, went away because we were too worried about bailing out the banks or supporting people. Um, no, the reason the Fed's going to cut, the reason the Fed's going to cut rates, regardless of this data is because of what's going on with the regional banks. You just had the bank in New York, uh, you know, got hit on Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever it was. You know, there are the liquidity and the reverse repo is is running out very quickly, and this all comes down to the member banks of the Fed, and they're going to make sure that there's plenty of liquidity there for those guys. And the Fed's going to have to start monetizing about thirty percent of the Fed, of the Treasury debt issuance, 
So again, they really don't have a choice. So yeah, economic data is great, but yeah, they're still going to cut rates. And So you're putting your finger right on the heart of like my angst here, right? Which is like, it yeah. feels like we have this my like, socks. well, it feels like we have this potankum, potem, pot, how do you pronounce it? Potemkin. Potemkin system, right? And for those that, that aren't familiar with the reference, it was... Uh, uh, it was back during the, the Russian czar era where yeah. it didn't want to disappoint the czar as to how bad things truly were. So when he was making this, this cross-country travel, they had this crew going ahead of him, basically building these facades at, at every village he would go through that that made it look like a really prosperous village. And then he'd, his car pool would go by and they'd dismantle it and then they'd go rebuild it you know, uh, at the next one. Um, so yeah, it's like everything is awesome. Right. Which the markets are taking that and saying, OK, great, this is our rationale to go higher here. Right. Uh, but kind of nobody believes it. Right. It's like your point. You're like, hey, you know what? The, the Fed's actually running scared about a lot of these things and it's going to cut for these reasons. Um, you know, we just talked about the jobs market probably not being nearly as sanguine as they're selling us. So it just feels like, again, we're, we're, we're just kind of collectively lying to ourselves. And as long as everybody truly believes in fairies, you know, Tinkerbell will continue to live here. But that's not, you know, it, 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 that has a reckoning at some point, right? But again, you know, that reckoning, and look, I, absolutely. At, at some point, there's going to be a price to pay. And, but, you know, this is the problem that I've told you about before is that I have, I have clients that come into my office now that have been out of the market since 2009 because they yep. kept believing that at any moment, the, the, you know, the face was going to come off, you know, this market and, you know, all this money would get lost and they were going to be there. And it's just, it's 500% higher than it was. And, you know, they're just uh, finally feels like I, I got to get in. I'm just, I've got to get ready for retirement. So, you know, that's the whole point about this is that right now, this is a market driven environment. You need to be long stocks. If, if you've got a really bearish bent to your portfolio, You've got to start changing that now. Eventually, and, and look, use corrections. Uh, we're going to have a correction sometime the, in the next few months. Use that as a correction to start moving some money back into stocks. But this is going to be the play for a while. And look, and when it begins to change, we're going to know, right? All, right? All our indicators will start ringing off bells. It'll say, "Hey, the trend is breaking." Then yes, you're going to lose a little bit of money off the top. You'll be down eight, nine, ten percent from the peak. But then you'll get out and you'll be able to avoid the 20, 30, 40% draft that comes after that. Okay. So let, let's dig in that just, just a little bit. So totally agree. And that's why I made the whole speech about yeah. being eagles earlier, right? But I'm sure many people have this worry, which is, all right, Lance, and because you're a capital manager, how do you avoid the Chuck Prince fate, right? Which is, hey, you know what? In this business, when the music's playing, you, you got to keep dancing and the music's still playing. So we're still on the dance floor, Right. Um, how do you, how do you, how, how do you have confidence that you as a capital manager can see the warning signs and get out with a flesh wound versus, you know, an amputation? Well, like I said, you know, look, we, every week we go through the charts and the analysis and, you know, and, you know, this, there's a lot of great managers out there that have avoided big downturns in the markets, right? They participated in the way up and they missed a lot of the downturn. Um, you know, we, in 2008, our portfolios were down about 8%. 
um, in 2020, our portfolios were down about 8% versus 35. So, you know, you know, it's when you start to see these turns and, and I wrote articles in February of 20, 2020 saying, hey, we're, you know, we're taking money out of the market. We don't know what's coming, but we feel something's coming. And we took exposure out of portfolios. So those things are, are there. You're going to see them. I mean, there's there's going to the markets are, are good at predicting outcomes. I said this on the other day, I was doing a radio show the other morning, and this is what I was explaining. And it's the same premise, which is, here's how you know the difference. Anything that you can think of right now. So, so Adam, give me your top five geopolitical, or three or two, just give me a couple. What, what are the couple of big things that are keeping you up at night right now? Yeah, I mean, I'll come up with something, but I know your point, which is whatever I can think of, the market's thought of and priced in. Right. All right. And that's right. So if you think it's Russia, Ukraine, if you think it's Israel, Hamas, if you think it's, um, you know, what happened in Iran uh, over the uh, last week with the three soldiers, if you think it's any of that stuff, this is how you know. Go flip on CNBC. What's the market doing? Is the market up or down? And if the market's up, that ain't it. That's not the thing. Right. Here's how you'll know. When, when you wake up one morning and there's some event that occurs overnight and you wake up in the morning and the market's down three, four, five percent in the morning, go sell everything because that's the thing that the market wasn't expecting. And, and that's the way markets work. So markets all are about liquidity. And as long as it's, you know, as long as there's buyers and sellers meeting demand, the market's going to just do what it's doing. At the moment that an event occurs, and, it, and again, this is why it's always some expected exogenous event that we're not aware of. It's something that all of a sudden the market wasn't looking at and it goes, oh, damn, I didn't expect that to happen. I've got to reprice now for this event. And that means I've got to do this. And that's where you just get sellers in mass in the markets and you have this big decline. And that's going to last. If that occurs, that's going to last for days. So, yeah, you're going to clip three or four percent right off the top getting out. That's just part of the deal. But you're going to miss whatever that downside draft is until the Fed steps in to start to bail it out. And that's what happened exactly in, in 2020. We were, we were going down a little bit. The pandemic was showing up and we were down five, six, seven percent from the peak. And all of a sudden that was when uh, President Trump stepped in and said, yep, we're going to shut down the economy. And then it was 30 percent lower right after that. And then at 30, 35% down, the Fed says, hey, guess what? We're here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 1.2 trillion in QE, uh, uh, buying junk bonds, uh, sending checks to households, and then the market started to recover. So, I mean, that's how you, that's that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that event where you flip on CNBC and the markets are falling apart. That's your sign to get out. All right. Well, I appreciate you answering that question because I said I, I, I know a lot of people have that concern about, well, if I'm in, how do I not get just thrown into the meat grinder? Um, when the process you just described is, is another big reason why, you know, we're so, um, we so often recommend that folks work with a good financial advisor, right? One that actually has that perspective, knows what to look for, can take action, you know, when needed during those shock surprise movements to, to protect you on the downside. And to be honest, most people, when that happens, Lance, when you flip on CNBC and it's down or whatever, most people are at work. Right. Like they've got real, like they don't have that's time okay. to rush and figure out what to do. Right. No, so. no, right. No, that's what I'm saying, though. Here's the mistake that people make. Yeah. So you're at work. Right. You get home in the evening and the market's down five percent. 
load up your orders for the next morning and sell. Here's what people do that, that winds getting them up in a trap. Okay, wow, the market was down 5%. So as soon as it bounces, I'm going to sell. And then the market's down 5 more percent the next day. Okay, well, if it bounce, as soon as it bounces, I'm going to sell. I'm going to get out. As soon as this thing bounces a little bit, maybe get me back close to where I was, I'll get out. Now they're right. down another 5%. You start pleading with God. Yeah, oh God, just, exactly. just to go back to where it was and I promise I'll sell, yeah. Exactly, right? And so we all find religion and foxholes in the stock market. Uh, the, the, the point is though, is that you don't worry about that. When you come home from that, whenever you get home from work and the market's down 5% a day, you just sell everything. Figure it out later. If the market goes up the next day, who cares? Buy back in. See, that's the other part that, that, that people make the big mistake right. on is that they, they sell and then they never get back in. So, you know, you, you, you can't worry about, you know, the, the big mistake that every investor makes is they don't want to be wrong. We're all going to be wrong. I'll, I'll give you my number one big wrong. I bought Meta right before earnings in October of 2022. Yeah, yeah, I remember them this program yeah. here. Watching. And, and the stock went down 20% the next day. We got stopped out and then I got off doing other things and I never bought the stock back. And now the stock's up 400% from the lows. Now we've made money elsewhere, but you know, huge mistake on my part. We all make mistakes, but you can't worry about being wrong. It's okay to be wrong. Just don't stay wrong. That's the thing, right? And and so once you're wrong, just you know reverse it and and get back into the game. And then next the next opportunity comes along, adjust from there. Well, I, I, so that's all totally true. Um, uh, I, I I just think though that Lance, that the vast majority of people, like real real life real people, mm -hmm. they come home at the end of the day, they flip on CNBC. Oh my God, the market was down five percent, and they're in shock. Right. Yeah. And I think they're in shock for a good while, days, weeks. Like, I just don't know what I should be doing here. They might not even be in that bargaining point with, with, with guys. <laughs> right. um, and again, this is sort of why, especially when things get really emotionally charged because things are moving faster than most people realize. Again, this is the discipline that a good financial advisor, you know, who's seen many of these before, had a plan in place for this, is, is reacting smartly in real time, can be a huge benefit for most people who are just in that flooded state by by emotion. So anyways, got to move on here. Um, so I asked the, the big question of, um, can the Fed cut here, right? I think I have an even bigger question for you, Lance. Um, and then we'll move on to your trades and then we'll move on to our, our rant, um, which is, um, okay, so we've got these uh, gargantuan, uh, we've got this gargantuan deficit now, right? We're doing um, as a percent of GDP, you know, we're doing uh, spending, uh, fiscal spending that we've only seen in times of real war, right? Uh, and I'm not talking about proxy wars that, you know, may be being fought around the world right now. I'm talking like sending, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of troops abroad, rejiggering our economy to support the war material and all that stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> Now, now that we have flipped the fiscal spigot to, to 11, right? We've dialed all the way up to 11. And it's now kind of becoming business as usual. Can it ever go back, right? Or will that just be so politically unpopular now that nobody's going to be the one to say, hey, you know what? We've been extra generous for a while. Now we have to tighten our belts a little bit and take some austerity. Is there a politician that's going to say that now, or have we crossed the Rubicon where it is just eternal maximal deficit spending? 
Well, look, we've been slowly, you know, that, you know, we talk about before, you know, the, the frog in the boiling water. So, you know, we talk about deficit spending and deficit spending has been on a growing trend ever since 1980 when Reagan took office. And, you know, prior to that, we didn't really run a deficit. We pretty much had no deficit but beginning in 1980, because at that point, Ronald Reagan's having to fend off two recessions before him. He's trying to get an interest, you know, Paul Volcker's trying to bring interest rates down from, you know, sky high levels. So they start doing some deficit spending. And then, which was, you know, right in line with Keynesian economic theory, which was that during a recession, you do deficit spending until the economy gets back on track. Well, what politicians heard was, is, oh, you do government spending. What they didn't hear was the part that they didn't like, which was, after the recession is over, you go back to a surplus. <laughs> That's Keynesian theory. Well, we just never did that. So we've been slowly just ramping up deficits ever since 1980. Now we have these periods where we go crazy with deficit spending, like during the financial crisis um, in 2008, we had a big surge in deficit spending. Thank you very much. Uh, during 2020, we had a big surge in deficit spending. And now we're starting to ramp up deficit spending again. And the only reason, by the way, that the deficit reduced um, in 2021 and 2022 was because we didn't renew the, the fiscal stimulus that we did in, in 2020. So that was the only reason the deficit declined. And now the spending that we're doing, this ongoing spending that we're doing is, is now ramping up that deficit again. But if you just draw a trend line, you can see where that trend, trend of the deficit is going. So to your point, Adam, yeah, this is the new, new world we live in since 1980, which is more deficits, the better, because what politicians figured out is that if I do deficit spending, then that creates economic growth and I get reelected. Yeah, I mean, look at this. We, we, this is the third highest year. Um, so 20, yeah, th th third highest year, third or third biggest deficit mm -hmm. relative to the, the record set during COVID, right, where we shut the global economy down, right? Okay. But now we have 4.2 plus percent GDP growth <laughs> that we're expecting. We've got, you know, Goldilocks jobs market inflation's coming down. It's it's perfection looking at the official data, right? And it's well, like if we need this level of fiscal spending in perfection, what the hell? Well, look, I mean, put it this way: in Q4 uh, of la of this past year, right, the economy grew at 3.3 percent according to the B uh, uh, BEA. We spent two dollars and fifty cents of debt to grow that three point three percent growth in the economy. So it's taking more and more debt to create that economic growth. So if you don't have debt issuance, if you're not running a deficit, you're not going to have economic growth. You're going to have negative economic growth without deficit spending. So the question you asked me was, is this the new thing? Yeah, this is the new thing. We're not ever going back to running a surplus because, we can do that. And as Mike talked about during his speech on Saturday, is that you can certainly get back to a surplus and we can certainly get this economy back on track, but you're going to have to go through a depression first and nobody wants to do that. Here's, here's the other side of that as well, is that, you know, if you take a look at the wealth of the top 1% versus the wealth of everybody else, that's crossed. And I'll own more net worth than the rest of the entire economy combined. And, but this has been a function that's been going on, not forever, because back in the 1970s, 1980s, there was actually a decent equilibrium between the top 1% and, and everybody else. And they kind of just tracked each other wealth-wise. 
But beginning in 2000, when, when we started doing monetary interventions and stock buybacks have gone crazy, et cetera, it has been a big wealth extraction out of the middle class. So we've just been drawing more and more wealth from the middle class and shifting it to the top 1%. And that's not going to change either because that's the way our market and our economy is driven right now. I mean, take a look at the stocks running today in the market. Meta, billions, it had a huge surge in uh, advertising revenue. Okay, think about that for a moment. If Meta is making billions of dollars in advertising revenue, that means that more and more people are buying products off of Facebook, right? Or Instagram, since they own Instagram too. Same thing for Amazon. And so, and same thing for Google. So yes, companies are advertising on these platforms to sell you product, which means it's the more of these things that you click on and the more things that you buy offline and more stuff you get sucked into on social media, you're sending them your money, right? So it's extracting your wealth and it's transferring it to these companies. So you keep living poor and they keep making more money, but that's the society right. that we're in today. Well, in the 10% of households that own 93% of stocks, you know, they're getting even richer as the share prices of those stocks go up because of that dynamic. Right. Exactly. But again, that's the whole part about, and, and look, the bottom 80% don't own stocks. So yeah. that's just more wealth that gets extracted <laughs> from the middle class. And then this is why this is, and this was the article from last week on the website, why, you know, despite booming economic data, Joe Biden's got the lowest opinion polls, you know, popularity ratings, you know, kind of an, of any president. And you've got this perfect economy and you've got really bad poll ratings. That's because the average American isn't buying into it because they don't, they're not participating, they're not participating in, in it. Yeah. yeah. In fact, yeah. they're suffering. They're, 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 in yeah. many cases, they're, 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 you know, yeah. retrograding. Exactly. Um, so I, I talked about this a bit with with Sven, um, and he raised a really good point, which is he's like, look, um, the, the problem is, is that this is the system now, right? Where so you you just said that it's going to be continued mega deficit spending going forward, and the Fed's going to have to monetize all this stuff, and as a output of all that, this wealth gap's going to continue to accelerate, right? And so the question is, is, well, all right, well, why don't we just see that that's a bad thing? And why don't we try to get under control? And to your point about how if we removed that, then we would have negative economic growth, right? We, we, we'd have a recession. Maybe some folks might even want to argue with depression, right? right? And so it's this hostage situation now, right? It's like, oh, you don't like it? Well, look, you know, then we're going to have to shoot everybody in America economically in the head because we're going to have this massive, you know, recession or depression. Who wants that, right? right? And nobody wants to raise their hand and say, "Oh yes, please, let's have a depression." But until there's some sort of big correction in the system like that, it's just going to con continue in the direction that you were talking about where more and more of the wealth and and advantage and opportunity concentrates in the pockets of fewer and fewer households going forward. Right. And and what's what worries me about that is is the systemic break is is almost the better choice at this point in time because the other the other trajectory ends in you know an American oligarchy, um, but also probably in some sort of real social breakage, right? Where the 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 armies of the dispossessed finally get to a breaking point where they just say this isn't working for us anymore. Now is that ten years in the future, a hundred years in the future? I don't know, but but that's that's basically you know a civil 
breaking an uprising after we basically destroyed the opportunity for all premise that this country was founded on. So I don't know. I just, it, when you asked me earlier, like things that keep me up at night, you know, yeah. it's actually less the geopolitical stuff and it's more the socioeconomic stuff. Right. Well, again, and look, it's, it's plenty of evidence around, you know, that around the country, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, social media as an example is not making our world any better. And, you know, it, it sounds great. It, it, you know, it connects people. I was listening to Mark Zuckerberg, you know, in front of Congress testify. Uh, yeah, I did want to note that that Congress did finally pull the social media companies and kind of, quote unquote, held them to account. Now, it was a lot of political grandstanding by a yeah. lot of the guys there. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it's funny. They held them to account. They never do anything about it. But, you know, but, you know, they were asking about, you know, have you, you know, have you fixed the problem of the stuff you're showing to young children? That's a super simple fix. You can't drive a car to your 16. You can't enlist in you know, the military to your 18. You can't buy alcohol to your 21. Put an age limit on social media. If you don't want your kids, you know, having access to, you know, suicide data and all this other type of stuff, put an age limit, right? You can't get on social media until you're an adult and you can figure out what's going on with it. I mean, so there's some super simple fixes, but you look at the world, you look at depression rates, you look at suicide rates, you look at you know, wealth, you know, wealth disparity rates, all those type of things. And there's almost an exact correlation back to 2010 when Facebook first went public. Yep. And ever since then, it's got as social media has progressed since 2010, things have gotten markedly worse in society. We have more division, more anger, more people are upset. You know, we have racism come back now. We we gotten rid of that for decades. Now it's back, you know, all and it all stems from social media. So th there's nothing good coming out of social media. But yet we're we're driving our whole lives around it. And now we've got a whole market that's driven around nothing but that. So I, I agree wholeheartedly with just about everything you said. I am going to say a little bit later something that's actually good that's coming out of some of these social media platforms, because that's what we're talking to people through. right? Now. <laughs> but I totally agree. And as, as a, you know, folks know, my wife's a, uh, a therapist, a family therapist. And I mean, for the past 15 years, you know, she has seen the rise of everything you're talking about, but at a very visceral level with the families that she's worked with and the kids, you know, who have been just toxically infected by by all this stuff. She also has, I know, at least one client who whose role is to um, basically watch the horrible things that get posted on social media to determine, OK, do we need to take that down or not? And it's terrible. I mean, it is terrible. Well, it is. So, so, and, there's, and there's the thing, right? What's your job? I watch horrible things get posted on social media to determine if they should take them down. If it falls in the qualification of horrible, it comes down, period. Yeah, right? but somebody <laughs> somebody has to determine, someone has to watch it to determine it's horrible. That's this, they're like the, the infantry cannon fighter that has to watch the, and, and, and no wonder they're in therapy because it's it's just, it's yeah. headings, it's horrible things with children. It's it's just terrible. So yes, there, there's so much about this that's corrosive and would we be a better society if we didn't have it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I see all these videos and TikTok is like, how did you Gen Xers stay out of the culture war? We didn't have social media. Yeah. We were outside playing with each other. And if we had a disagreement with somebody, we punched them in the nose. Right. We had that was the way it worked. We had to invent our own fun. We had to manage through yeah. all of our interpersonal relationships. It's so funny. Maybe, because, <laughs> maybe if you went back to that, things would be better anyway. Well, you know, what's crazy is like, um, I was just saying this yesterday. Uh, 
you know, Gen X is kind of, we're both Gen X, right? And, right? and Gen X and boomers, but Gen X are taken over from boomers now that boomers are, are aging. Um, you know, we're kind of becoming the like wise, you know, elders here to the millennials and the Gen Z and saying, hey, you know, back in our day, we didn't have this stuff and we had to figure this stuff out on our own, right? And Gen Z has the slacker generation, you know, uh, yeah. knock against it. And, and being honest, like, not for nothing, right? You know, um, and the fact that now, like, maybe the world is hinging upon the wisdom of Gen X, like, that, that's probably not the best place you want to be. Like, that's not a sign <laughs> of excellence, right? You know, like, it's rather have the guy who fought, fought World War One advising me, like, those guys knew how to do stuff, right? Yeah, no. And you're talking to a generation that was shooting bottle rockets at each other and throwing yard darts. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. You know, it's not necessarily the best generation to go to for wisdom. Yeah. But hey, could be the guys that, you know, won World War One and World War Two and built America with their bare hands. Yeah. Or the guys that, you know, can recite <laughs> Beavis and Butthead and have, you know, burn scars from bottle rockets. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, look, moving on. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, we'll revisit your retirement savings uh, next week, Lance, just because we're beginning to get a little bit uh, tight on time here. Trades, what trades have you guys made over the past week, if any? So the, the vast, we did a few trades this week. Uh, the vast majority was in the building out of the dividend equity model. So, you know, like I was saying earlier, we, we bought uh, last week, we bought Meta, Apple, Google, because, um, because that dividend equity model is 30%, the MAG7. 70% dividend yielding stocks. So you get the S&P performance with a higher dividend yield. So that's mostly what we did last week. Uh, today, as, as I, I mentioned early on in the show, um, we're lengthened the duration in our uh, bond portfolio. We, we switched 5% of our short duration bonds, one to three year uh, to seven to 10 year bonds. So that was kind of the, the big change. Uh, the equity model and the ETF model really haven't needed a lot of changes. Um, they It's been performing well. Uh, it's a 60-40 model. And as of yesterday, the performance on a year-to-date basis was just only slightly below that of the S&P 500. So it's been tracking fairly well this year without performing our benchmark by a pretty hefty amount at the moment. So again, we've kind of got the right mix so far this year. We'll see if that remains the case. But uh, at this point, it's doing fine. Okay, so perhaps the fundamentalists of you in you may not love this market, but the portfolio manager in you is is enjoying. Hey, it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like today. The you know the portfolio is doing okay. Um, it's not doing as well as as the market because what's driving the market today are five stocks, basically six stocks. Um, we own those stocks, but you look at the good fundamental companies that actually grow earnings and have a good you know fundamental value. They're all negative today. So, you know, that really kind of tells you what's going on in the overall market. But, you know, again, it's just it's just that's the market we're in. And, you know, we have to be a little bit prudent about how much risk we take in a portfolio, because, again, we're, you know, as our as as our article today was talking about, about retirees taking on too much equity risk. There is a risk to that if something goes wrong and you don't have time to recover. So, you know, we always run a portfolio that's got some built in hedges to it, theoretically. And that's kind of the, the idea behind the dividend equity growth model, which is that in an environment where money rotates out of these big mega seven, it should rotate into these dividend yielding stocks that have higher dividend, high dividend yeah. lower, lower volatility. So that portfolio theoretic in, in theory, right? So this is why it's in beta right now. We're going to run it for three months at Simplevisor. Um, and then we'll, un, you know, we'll, 
pull it out for our clients to, to invest in because there's a lot of demand for it. We got a lot of clients that want that. And I've had a lot of requests for it, but I want to run it for about three months, but the volatility should be relatively less than the markets, but then we get relative performance and a higher yield. So that's, that's the goal that we're going to try to get to. Okay. All right. Um, so I got two, two things I want to address in our rant. Um, uh, the, the first one is, uh, it's about media. We're seeing a pretty pretty big correction. Some would even say wipeout across the media space right now. Mm -hmm. um, let me just mention a couple casualties recently. So this week, the Messenger uh, was shut down. If you if you haven't if you're not familiar with the Messenger, don't feel bad. It was around for less than a year, um, but it's kind of interesting. It was it was created to be um, kind of a new big thing in media and in this very partisan media landscape. This was going to try to to chart a more agnostic course, and uh, they raised fifty million for it, and it they burned through it all in a year. Um, they they shut down the company uh, unexpectedly. In fact, most of the employees found out about it through other media before they heard about it from their own company. Um, but in the last month, dozens of layoffs were announced at outlooks at outlets, including NBC News, Time Magazine, Business Insider, and the Los Angeles Times, Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated is shedding a significant reduction of its 100-member workforce. Staffers at Condé Nast walked off the job over the company's plan to lay off staff, and the Wall Street Journal shook up its DC bureau with big layoffs. Um, so we're seeing, and we've talked about this a bit in the past, Lance. Um, you know, people, well, the, the the traditional media model really suffering, and I think a big part of that is because. Eyeballs are leaving. People are spending less time in these outlets. And, and the reason for that, which we've talked about in the past and relates to the financial uh, mainstream media, is that people are just not feeling well served anymore by it. Right. And, and the number one complaint we get is by CN uh, folks saying I've left CNBC because CNBC basically is an eternal market cheerleader. No matter what happens, it's always a good time to buy stocks. And that's largely because their big advertisers are these big ETFs, right? And so they 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 want to keep their advertisers happy. Also, you know, CNBC, a good example of just wanting a soundbite, right? It's more entertainment than it is actually actionable information. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why people are coming online to sites like this one to get what I consider to be or what I call um, more financially nutritious information. And so where I'm going with this, folks, is th there is this sea change that's going on in media and um it, it is a probably the principal reason why thoughtful money exists and, and has been doing fairly well so far um, is because hopefully we are providing a better service than folks are getting elsewhere, right? And we have these long form discussions here so that we can really get into the meat of the data. We try to keep it very, um, you know, focused on the information versus trying to just be entertainers. Um, and uh, fortunately, that seems to be working fairly well so far. Um, but what I want to point out here is that um, what gets supported in terms of you know one media versus another is the one that's supporting the viewer's needs. And we're, we try to do our best job of that here, um, but it's a two-way street, right? There's only so much that I can anticipate or, or that I can glean uh, by instinct or, or by data. And it's really hearing from you all What's most important to you? You know, what do you see? What, what are we doing well? What do you want to see more of? Where are we falling short? What improvements would you like to see? So this is 
basically just a big ask for me to say, um, first off, thank you all for your support and your viewership and, and, and everything that's allowing Thoughtful Money to, to exist. But also, um, you know, please keep the dialogue going. When you when you comment in the comment section, I do read every single comment here on YouTube. When folks email us uh, at Thoughtful Money, uh, I read every email. And just for the record, the email address there is support at thoughtfulmoney.com. So if you have something to say, uh, I guarantee that I will listen to it. Can't always guarantee I'll act on it. Um, you know, we, we can't we can't you know, meet everybody's uh, wish. But certainly in the aggregate, we listen to what people are telling us and then take action from that. Lance, just curious, because you've been in the financial media industry for a long time. Anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's you know, the the legacy media like Wall Street Journal, et cetera, you know, they really they really hurt themselves becoming because they become very partisan. Right. So they only report one side of, of the news. And there's been you know clear uh, you know, suppression of data that pe people aren't stupid. Right. And that's one you know, that's one reason that we do all of our own research. You know, uh, you know, people ask me, like, what do you watch? Or they I don't watch anything. Um, you know, I'm not on social media. Um, I go on Twitter in the morning. I post charts. Except TikTok, apparently. It sounds like you spend all your time on TikTok. No, no, no. I know this is how people <laughs> send me. I, I get all I get all kinds of emails from people. Right. So but. You know, I don't go on social media during the especially during the day, but in the morning I'll post stuff on Twitter and I I don't return to it till the next morning. And then I post stuff and I leave because all that distracts me from the data. So everything that we do internally in terms of, you know, the news or the data or whatever it is, we're doing our own data crunching, right? Because we just find the raw data and we just crunch the data. And, you know, during the COVID pandemic and during all that, there was just all kinds of false narratives being put out to the media and they were very easy to prove with the data, right? But nobody wanted to hear that. And, you know, people want to argue and then they just want to present their side and they don't want to listen to the other side. And we can't have conversations about anything. So that division is just driving more and more people away. Uh, the, she, the speaker of the editor of the Wall Street Journal, she was at Davos and she actually, she said straight up, she says, we don't control the narrative anymore. Yeah. Um, and we don't control the news. And that's because that's their short-sightedness. Um, you know, Fox News has fallen in this bucket. CNN. Yeah, they, they've lost the trust of their viewers. Exactly. And, and they worked to do so. It wasn't a mistake. I mean, it was something. Oh, no, no, that... Yeah, they, 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 they worked really hard at, you know, blowing the trust of consumers. And, and so consumers are now, and, and the other problem now is also, is we talked about this before, just about people being feed to death. Right. You know, if, you know, everybody's got a sub stack, everybody not, not, you know, Adams is worth it, but everybody's got a wow. sub stack. Right. Uh, you know, everybody's got a pay for channel. Everybody's got a pay for newsletter. And, you know, people that are trying to make ends meet, you know, they, they've got, you know, every every time they have a service, the, the service is raising a fee on them. And then somebody else is, oh, if you want to read this article, you got to pay you know, $3 a month to read this yeah, article. They all paywalled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and so now consumers are having to be much more conscious about where they get their data and where they're getting their information. And, you know, this is, and this is, and individuals are becoming much more selective about where they're getting that information from. And the problem with a lot of these legacy medias, and Business Insider is a great example of this, very partisan, one-sided reporting um, you know, from their from their site, and they're paying that price for that now because people are going elsewhere where they can get better data, better information, and in a lot of cases, get it for free. Well, let, let, let me be transparent about this too. So, one of the the cornerstones of what we built here at Thoughtful Money is a content 
production platform that provides the vast majority of the content and as high quality content as we can create to the world for free, right? And, and being super transparent about that, folks, the way in which we fund that is, and I, and I think that this is the right thing to do anyways, is we encourage people to work with a good financial, good professional financial advisor who understands all the, the macro issues that we talk about here, right? As I say every week, if you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. They're really worth their weight in gold. But if you don't, feel free to have a free conversation with the financial advisors that you see on this program with me every week. Lance, the guys at New Harbor, Jonathan Wellam from uh, Canada. Um, it's totally free. It will help you, right? You'll get good information, good, good quality guidance. You can do with that guidance whatever you want, right? You can do a DIY strategy. You can give it to your existing advisor and say, hey, I thought these guys were smart. Do this. Or if you like the advisors, you can talk with them about maybe working for them. And some percentage of people do do that. Um, that provides the, the revenue stream into this, this whole platform that allows us to offer everything up for free. So, you know, that's what we've tried to create here is basically a virtuous system that benefits everybody, um, but allows us to help as many people as possible by keeping a free product widely distributed. Um, and I think more of the media should try to find models like that and not just kill people with fees or paywalled content or everything else that you were just talking about, Lance. Um, so anyway, well, look, 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 at the end of the day, the consumers is going to drive this. You know, I, I was, I was, I was, I, I was mentioning earlier is that, you know, uh, that, you know, my wife and I are watching the Reacher series on Amazon. So we've had Amazon prime, you know, forever, right. We have one account that she and I share. And, and so that gives us access to prime video. And so the other day she got back from her trip and we sit down to watch another episode of Reacher. And it says, this, this video will now contain ads unless you want to pay another $2.95 a month. Yep. And I, I kind of chuckled and I looked at my wife and I go, honey, look at this. I said, we're finally going back to the way it was when we watched TV growing up because TV was free and you had commercials and nobody cared, right? And so, you know, I think we're going to see a shift back towards bundling of services. You know, we, we were going to cut the cord, get rid of bundling, and that was going to be cheaper for everybody. Now it's gotten more expensive. So I think we'll see a pushback towards bundling. And I think we'll see a pushback towards free television that has ads. <laughs> In other words, we're just going to go full circle. But I think we'll see this with news content. I think ultimately, I think, um, you know, these news outlets are going to figure it out that what consumers want by and large is just fair unbiased reporting you know tell me tell me both sides of the story let me determine what the let me determine what i want to believe but give me both sides you know if if it's over the border crisis in texas give me both sides of that story let me determine what's good with that and what's bad with that so i have a, and i think there'll eventually be a push back towards that because we've gone to propaganda not news yeah no no i agree and again i think that's one of the reasons why why channels like this are doing so well is, is people are starved for just impartial information. Like, look, right. just give me the facts. Or if, if, if it's cloudy, let's have a debate and let's try to, let's have this be an exploration to try to understand what the truth is, right? As opposed right. to, you know, we've got two people with opposing sides and they're just shouting each other or we're trying to cram, as you said, propaganda well, together. Or, and, or you're suppressing data or you're not giving the whole story or, you know, right, whatever. Right, right. But, but to your point, I, I think what consumers are really hungry for at the end of the day is just value, right? I, I, want, the, I want quality content of whatever type of content I'm looking for, information, entertainment, whatever you know, at a price that makes sense to me. And, and I fear, and you talked about, you know, 
the the prime example of them saying, hey, we're, we're going to start shoving ads in this stuff unless you pay us, is there's this sort of like business model that's emerging that it's like, um, it's, it's suckification is sort of how I think of it, right? Which is like, hey, we're going to make this suckier unless you want to pay us more, right? right. And uh, I, I don't think that that serves consumers well in the long run either. You might be right that we might kind of go back to the future on some of this stuff, but but you know, I, I was transparent about our business model because I think there are models out there that can be win-win-wins for everybody, right? right? And look, um, and look, and but look, we're not pursuing like, them. Right, and more people would, if the consumer would do what they should, which is to vote with their dollars. And you know, if, if you don't look, for instance, as an example, then this will never happen. But let's say that you're opposed to Netflix raising their fee again, because they're about to raise it again. And then they're going to have a commercial. They're going to have one lower fee that gives you commercials and then right. one the higher that's fee. The, that's the suckification model. Right. Yeah. All right. So unsubscribe from Netflix. If everybody unsubscribed from Netflix, you know how fast their fee would come down? You know, so my point is, is that the consumer has control over all of this. And, you know, we just have to make the conscious decision that we want something better. And if you want something better and there's demand for it, guess what? Somebody's going to build it. And somebody would build a new service as an example that would be, you know, a purveyor of truth, however you want to, you know, motto it. Um, but there just has to be the demand for it. And if if that changes... And there's this new opportunity that exists and people migrate towards that and leave these other kind of legacy media sources in the dust. They're going to change because they want to stay in business. Right. And yeah. we, all, we as consumers, we all forget that we have power to change everything. We have the power to do it. We just have to be willing to sacrifice. And that's the key word. Right. You got to You've got to give up something in order to make this change. But it'll get better if you do. I so completely agree. And I got to move on to our last rant um, so we can wrap this up in time. But but I, I totally agree. And, and again, that's sort of my whole point, which is we're seeing that happen in, in legacy media right now, as people are basically voting with their feet, with their dollars. Um, and we saw it happen. And I'm not trying to get on whatever side of the issue. I'm just saying it, it was the consumer flexing their power. But we saw this with things like the reaction to Bud Light and to Target last year, right, where the consumers basically said, I don't agree with this. I'm taking my money elsewhere, right? And to your point about social media, like we could as a society, forget about the government for a second, just as parents say, you know what? We're just going to say no social media for our kids until they're a certain age, right? Now, it, it's super hard. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not even saying that that necessarily is going to happen anytime soon, but it's possible. And we do have that agency as uh, as a populace to say, look, you know, we're going to support the change we want to see in the world. So anyways, totally agree with you. All right. Getting to the second part of this rant. This isn't a rant, actually. This is actually a really funny story. Um, but I'm wrapping it in the context of um, this is what government problem solving looks like. And Lance, you have ranted in the past that whenever government gets involved, whatever sector, whatever industry, it always makes things worse. Right. We've mm -hmm. seen that happen in education. We've seen that happen in housing. We've seen that happen in just just example after example. So um, this is a great story. I, I just stumbled across this for the first time in forever. And it, it just, I said, I got to talk about this on the, the recap with Lance. Do you know who Dave Barry is? Yeah, it's a yeah. guy that wrote uh, Dilbert. 
No, that's Scott Adams. Like, Dave no. Barry is a humorist. He, he's he's yeah. written columns for like the Miami Daily Herald for decades, but just yeah. super funny comedian, yeah. right? And I actually um, saw him present once and he told this story and it is 100% true and you can find it online and I will, I will include a link to it in the, the description below this video. So um, this is how the government uh, took care of a problem back in the 70s. So in 1970 in Florence, Oregon, a 45 foot, eight ton sperm whale carcass washed ashore on the beach, okay? And I guess the beaches in Oregon are um, under the uh, the authority of the, the highway division, right? The Oregon Highway Division. So they had the responsibility of figuring out what to do with this massive rotting whale carcass, right? So uh, they get a bunch of guys from the transportation division there and they're looking around and, and these guys are used to building highways. And so they're used to just kind of blowing things up that get in their way. So they decide, you know what? Um, let's Let's get some dynamite Let's blow this whale carcass into little pieces. And then all the, the ocean, the beach scavengers, you know, the, the seagulls and the crabs that are nibbling on it right now, they'll have these small pieces and they'll be able to eat them a lot faster and, and nature will take care of things. So um, these guys, uh, you know, are trying to figure out how much uh, dynamite to, to pack under this thing and they keep packing and packing. And of course, the news crews have been following this now for days and everybody's super excited. So the big day comes where they're going to blow up the whale. And so they, they get the media to move back, like, I don't know, a mile or so from the carcass. And uh, everybody's watching and they they you know, push the plunger and boom, massive explosion, right? Whale just vaporized, basically. And everybody's looking and they're like, all right, hey, you know, these guys did their job, you know, they blew up the whale, right? And then all of a sudden you start hearing the loud thumps of just massive chunks of blubber and whale parts descending all over the media and the crowd that's gathered. Like they blew this thing so big that a mile away, <laughs> there's just, there's just, you know, whale galore fall. It's falling on cars. It's staving in the cars. The, actually the guy who, um, the guy who was in charge of determining how much dynamite to use, his car got destroyed um, and he had just bought it at one of the local car dealerships that was offering a promo called get a whale of a deal on a car because of the whole carcass thing. And, you know, those little like um, scavengers that they were expecting were going to eat the whale vaporized. Right. They, they just blew every seagull and uh, crab to kingdom come in like a half mile radius of this whale. Uh, and of course, you know, basically they they blew the center of the whale up. So there's still massive parts of the whale still there on the beach. So they didn't really even solve the core problem itself, but they just created this massive chaos and destruction, you know, in this this radius around the whole whale. So basically, you know, that's just government, right? I mean, when it when it's got a solution, nine times out of ten, that solution is just as bad, if not worse, than the problem it started out to solve. Yeah, that's right. And I'm actually uh, writing an article for next Friday because, um, you know, we, we, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about housing unaffordability. And so Elizabeth Warren and three Democrats are now have a solution to make housing affordability better, which is to cut interest rates, which is exactly the opposite of what you want to do. So I've got an article. I've got a really good article on housing coming out next Friday that we can we can talk about.
Yeah, just classic. And who knows if that passes. Um, if it does, we'll talk a lot about it here. Um, I just want to share one of my favorite demotivational posters they have here um, for folks that are listening on the podcast. It says, government, if you think the problems we create are bad, just wait until you see our solutions. Um, so anyways, guys, that Dave Barry story, uh, way funnier if you hear Dave Barry describe it. I'm sure you can find a description where he's talking about it on the internet. But I will actually post the link to the um, to the actual news footage of the whale getting exploded and then the, the huge chunks of whale carcass falling down on the audience uh, in the description under this video. Uh, it's a 100% true story. Um, all right, as we wrap up here, Lance, um, I did just want to give you a chance to say uh, anything you like about any takeaways that you took away from the, the Houston event. Like I said, um, I, I just had such a great time there in general. Um, still full from the meal you took me to afterwards. I'm still paying for that one. Um, but all the folks that came up to me, um, so helpful, so generous, so wonderful to meet them all um, in the flesh. Um, I, I hardly ever get out of my little man cave studio here. So it was such a great experience for me. And, and Greg um, Valier, is that how you say his last name? Valier, yeah. Yeah, um, really smart guy. I'll probably have him on this program at some point in time um, to sort of talk about the intersection of how politics impacts the economy. But, um, you know, what I took away from him was that uh, government is, is basically the cluster show that we all suspect it to be. And that, um, you know, the real problem there, the root of the problem in all this is money in politics it's it's all the massive special interest money that has just basically infected its way into the political system and uh i i did get a a depressing sense from him that that that's what drives the action there and and it doesn't seem to be any any way to untangle that uh that yeah. he can see easily well no and you know i've talked about this before which is you know corporations you know drive bills they you know the lobby groups drive political decisions and Government shouldn't be involved in politics. I mean, the corporations shouldn't be involved in politics at all, but they 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 vote basically uh, with their dollars and they drive a lot of this. I mean, you know, I, I'm still baffled how George Soros, who contributes to a lot of political outcomes in the United States, and he doesn't even live in the United States. So, you know, we've got to figure out as citizens at some point that, you know, if we want free, fair elections, we've got to get and we want government to to actually represent our needs and our our goals and the things that we want. We've got to get corporations out of it. And you know, this is the part of the problem with the housing market, right? We have massive corporations involved in housing, that just makes things worse for everybody. So yeah, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but you know, I don't. There's not a way to correct that because the people in charge of changing those bills are the ones that benefit from those corporations being involved through political campaigns, super PACs, etc. So they're certainly not going to vote for, you know, getting rid of political uh, corporate money in politics because that's what that's what supports them. It's just like asking a congressman to vote for term limits. Why would I do that? Right. <laughs> you know, so these are the problems that we have with government. And, our, and our, look, our founding fathers never envisioned corporations being involved in the in the system. That's why it's not addressed in the Constitution. Um, you know, they would not be for this. This was exactly the, the stuff that goes on today is exactly the stuff that they were trying to leave and get rid of when they fled England and came here to establish a new country. And unfortunately, we're going right back to those very things that they were trying to get away from through a lot of the decisions that we make. It's unfortunate, but there's nothing that I can see on the horizon that'll change that. That's interesting. Um, 
head corporations been around back in the 1700s, I wonder if it wouldn't just have been a separation of church and state, but it would have been a separation of church, state businesses, business <laughs> interests and in, in state. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Well, look, um, folks, I'm wrapping it up here. Lance, as usual, I'm going to give you the, the last word in just a minute here. Um, but um, just want to give folks a peek on what's coming up this week in terms of interviews. Um, we've got Sven Henrik tomorrow. We, then we've got uh, Axel Merck. Um, then we've got Michael Green. And then we've got Grant Williams. So it's actually a very strong week of great guests coming up here. Um, just want to remind folks that tickets uh, are now on sale for the spring conference, for Thoughtful Money Spring Conference. Again, that's going to take place on Saturday, March 16th. Uh, don't worry if you can't watch live. Everybody who registers will get sent replay videos uh, within 24 hours of the event. Um, and a uh, reminder that right now it's it's on sale for the lowest ticket price, the um, early bird price. And I want to make sure everybody who wants to go gets the lowest price possible. So if you're interested in going, register soon. And a reminder, if you are a premium subscriber to our Substack, you'll get an additional 50% off the price to become a, a premium subscriber of the Substack. If you're not one already, just go to adamtaggart.substack.com. And as I said earlier, uh, last week, I think, I don't mind if you game the system, right? I don't mind if you sign up for one month for 15 bucks to save the greater 50 bucks. Great, I want you to get the lower price. Um, and then as a reminder um, for everything we talked about earlier about the importance of a good financial advisor, especially in, in this type of market environment, if you wanna set up one of those free consultations, uh, perhaps even with Lance uh, and his firm, uh, uh, real investment advisors, uh, just go to thoughtfulmoney.com, fill out the short form there, only takes you a couple of seconds. Um, all right, Lance, as usual, you get the last word, buddy. Um, well, we'll just uh, kind of see how this week goes. And uh, next Friday, we'll see what the market's doing. I I have no idea, but we'll Please. find out. <laughs> Appropriate for Groundhog Day. Hey, we'll just do it all over again next exactly. week. Exactly. All right. Well, Lance, thanks so much for getting in the saddle with me again this week. Everybody else, have a great weekend and thanks so much for watching.